Hello and welcome to Undercommon Taste. This is a podcast where we create and discuss homebrew content for tabletop RPGs. It's a world world. Let's keep it that way. I'm Ian Woodworth and I'm joined by my co-host James Daly. Today we are not going into Mechanus. I know we promised you guys that we were going to go into Mechanus at the end of last episode, but we have a special guest that we got the honor to interview for today's episode that we just could not pass up. So allow us to introduce to you Jonathan Pruitt of WebDM. Pruitt, welcome to Undercommon Taste. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate y'all having me on. I hope your listeners enjoy this talk, and I am sorry to uh, abolish the order that is Mechanus and its place <laughs> in the uh, queue. It is just a temporary delay. The cosmos will realign itself. It'll be fine. If we're going to abolish order anywhere, it's going to be Mechanus. I mean, really, come on. <laughs> yeah. They have they have order to spare. Uh, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, Orcus managed it, right? That's right. Yeah. So... How is everything going today, Pruitt? Uh, well, things are good. Things are hectic. I just had our big announcement for our uh, Kickstarter coming out here. It uh, goes live on June 9th. And so it's just been busy, busy as far as just responding to all the things that happen when you're doing this. So this is new to me. So I'm <laughs> just, uh, just trying to keep my head above water, but it's it's fun. So let's go ahead and uh, start off with how about you tell us a little bit about yourself for people who may or may not be familiar with WebDM for the three people who would listen to our podcast who wouldn't know who you guys are? <laughs> oh, that's all good. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm one half of WebDM. I co-host the show on YouTube alongside Jim Davis, my longtime friend and DM. We've been, we started playing D&D together when I was like 19, 20. So more than half my life ago. And uh, about six years ago, we started up a channel with another friend on YouTube and been plugging along ever since. And finally, this year, we uh, are putting our creator money where our commentator mouth is, I suppose, (laughs) instead of talking about books and things coming out for various role-playing games, we decided to go ahead and make one. So we are making a supplement to 5e called The Weird Wastelands. Awesome. So what can we expect with Weird Wastelands? Is it a full adventure? Is it some single campaign one-offs or... Is it something different? Well, no, it is not either of those, but uh, you could do adventures from it. It is a exploration toolkit, much in the same vein of like the 3.5, like Stormrack and Sandstorm and all those, where it's more of an implied setting. Any longtime listeners of WebDM would know uh, Jim ran a game for a while in a setting that he called the Land Between Two Rivers. That was very much a post-apocalyptic wasteland type. And so there is much of the the soul and the spirit of that setting in this book. But uh, it's more of a, I would, we call it an implied setting. It's a exploration toolkit that has uh, locations. It has monsters, NPCs. We're going to do a subclass for each of the main classes. We're doing our own original take on the Scion. And basically what we want is to just provide a toolkit to support DMs in the exploration pillar, which uh, we have long thought is a much neglected pillar of play in 5e. Uh, oh, absolutely. Sure. So yeah. basically, it's going to be a world build primer for those who were interested in such. Yeah, if you're interested in magically created uh, wastelands from magical apocalypses, and you would like to have uh, locations and little set piece encounters ready to just plunk down into your world, that's the whole idea. We wanted to try to make this as easy as possible on DMs and players. More DMs for use at the table. Like I said, there are player options. We're going to have some spells and feats in there as well. Also some you know fun wasteland equipment. But we really want this to be more about uh, ease of use for the DM and to have fun exploration, you know, type encounters and to bring that back into the game because, you know, it's the old adage. It's not the, you know, it's <laughs> it's about the journey, not the destination. So let's not just fast travel through everything. Awesome. Right. Yeah. And I was actually going to ask if this was going to be in the same vein as Land Between Two Rivers. I started into the series And then I got about three episodes in and the company I work for banned earbuds on the floor. It was a sheet metal shop. So I suddenly fell way behind on all of my actual play podcasts and and such. So I didn't actually manage to get past the first few episodes, but I really enjoyed the setting that Jim had put together for that. And I was hoping that this would be along those lines. Yeah. Anybody who knows anything about the land between two rivers, you will definitely, the DNA is in there, right? And so it may not be so, uh, it's not, (laughs) 
this isn't so like monster centric, whereas Land Between, you know, Land Between Two Rivers was like no core races at all, you know, because that was something Jim just wanted to do. But this is more about the actual like scarring of the land, the repercussion of that. And, you know, what does that do? to a land whenever uh, it is just completely obliterated by magic, just rended through. And uh, what happens after when the gods are gone? It's just, you know, basically, uh, what was the sentence that we came up with as our elevator pitch? It's what if Skyrim and Fallout had a baby and that baby was raised by uh, D&D? Oh, nice. That kind of makes me excited. Yeah, that's where we're aiming. That's the lane that we're trying to aim down, right? Yeah, because the two big franchises that we are fans of here on this particular podcast are Warcraft and mm-hmm. Bethesda. <laughs> so this is actually right down our lane. Absolutely. Again, going back, some of my first RPG experiences was less tabletop and more video games. But the first two fallouts were my real kind of introduction into that role play character building type thing. Oh, yeah. Dude, I'm right, I'm right there with you. The guy who is my first DM, he showed me Fallout one day, and he's also the person who inter- introduced like the Baldur's Gate games to me. Oh, uh, Baldur's trying Gate to, great. yeah, yeah, trying to ease me into playing D and D because at that yeah, time, games was, you call them, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, oh, exactly. That's exactly what. They are. But uh, yeah, Fallout was one of the games that really hooked me in, and, and I I have not played Fallout Four, but uh, pretty much every other version I've at least played, if not beaten. But Fallout 3, to me, is like one of the best games I've ever Fallout made. Fallout 3 was amazingly done. Yeah. I really like it. Of the newer ones, I mean, kind of rabbit trail, of the newer ones, I really think that New Vegas really has the feel of the first two. But Fallout yeah. 3 was extremely well done. Yeah, a little bit more of the silliness. Yeah, 4 was fun. New Vegas, I think, is my favorite. Yeah, getting to listen to Big Iron while shooting people with a <laughs> yeah. revolver. It doesn't get much better than that. Really. So, again, you talked about how kind of this world has, there's been some sort of magical catastrophe or, or repercussion or something like that. So it sounds like you actually get into some ecology of the world that has to deal with this magic as well. Is that correct? Well, I mean, when I say that, like, uh, we are going to offer just various options for like flavor text. So if you have a world and there you've had a magical apocalypse, this could be a, a book that you could use to help fill out that setting. Right. So we're going to have multiple options like, you know, what happens if the gods leave? What happens if there's a magical disaster? Because all this comes out of uh, we actually had a campaign where everybody, instead of winning and being the big damn heroes, we had a TPK and the bad guys won. And it was a bunch of vampires and drow and they blotted the sun out. And so that happened in the campaign world that Jim had because he had this ongoing campaign world that every campaign took place in it at some date and time or whatever. And so our next campaign was people raised in a world with no sun where the ecology is wrecked and it's just like, oh, it's a very weird wasteland and they're trying to bring the sun back. But the surface has completely changed because it's like a century later. And so this idea has been kind of brewing for a while. And so that's why we just decided to do like a book like this that, you know, it has locations, it has adventure hooks, but it's not we're not going to give you a specific setting to play in. We're merely going to give you a toolkit to fill out the setting if this is your cup of tea. Awesome. That sounds fascinating. And that is something that really is missing in fifth edition. Uh, It's something that we've actually touched on multiple times on our podcast is that we're having to go back to the third edition and second edition books to get the lore and the locations and the people to make these scenarios, to make these campaign settings, to make these worlds, because like in the Dungeons Masters Guide, so many of the outer planes especially have been distilled down to one paragraph and you cannot use one paragraph to create something on a plane like Elysium that has four layers. No, there's absolutely no way. Yeah, I think this is a case of like, I'm not sure the reasoning behind it specifically. I think it's more of just them trying to have a kitchen sink approach where they're like trying to give you a little bit of everything, but it's not really enough to use. It's more of just like, yeah, no, there's this place and it might be cool. And if you're really good, you can go there and fight. You know, like I totally get it. But, uh, (laughs) you know, I guess you just have to wait for like some kind of Planescape book to come out if they ever do that. (laughs) Right. Or, you know, hey, wait till an awesome Kickstarter comes out and then you can kind of go. And that's really what fifth edition has been. I think what James is going for is that's really what has fueled so much of the innovation in fifth edition is all of the third party materials, um, mm-hmm. which 
I appreciate. I appreciate that there are so many great creators in the community that have this platform, that have this framework that they can build on to create a product that people want and that people feel like they need. But on the other hand, it's Watsy's game. And I feel like Watsy should at least do a little bit more to give us a framework to work on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that is the rub because what you're caught in between, which I guess they've decided with 5th edition to go with more of a um, always leave them wanting more approach so that uh, they can avoid what happened in like 3rd and 4th edition with the like the shelf bloat, you know, where like <laughs> they're cranking out five books a year along with all the other third parties. And then you're, you know, nobody has any more money because there's just so many books. And and so I don't know if that's part of it. It seems like it with fifth edition, they've been very concerned because what they only what two books a year two sometimes three. Yeah. Yeah. They, they, I yeah, think they announced four for this upcoming year, if I'm correct. Yeah. And so maybe that's showing like, Hey, we need to go ahead and uh, try to get some properties out while five E is still going strong. Cause I mean, like you don't hear them talking about any kind of six E or anything like that or a next project. They're still uh, milking this cow for all it's worth. Right. Well, yeah, I mean, but- and it's popular enough that they can keep milking it for all that it's worth. Exactly. Which is why you should check out our Kickstarter and <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, add, add to your shelf of five E books. <laughs> Yeah, totally. And I mean, would your Kickstarter book, would Weird Wastelands actually be applicable if someone wanted to like maybe retcon it to 3.5 or something like that? Would it be easy to adapt or is it built specifically for 5e? Well, I mean, it's built with the mechanics of 5e in mind. Okay. But there's going to be a ton of location information, setting, uh, like, you know, like this type of setting, like what it would be like to live in, you know, weather, all these things. That's going to be in there. Like information, NPCs, maps. These are all things that you don't, they don't need to be the same system. I mean, it's not really that difficult to alter from like 5th to 3.5 or back and forth. I've done it plenty of times with, uh, you know, old adventures, because uh, that's one of my favorite things to do is just taking a, a piece of an old adventure that's like, oh yeah, we can finally use that, you know? And so, yeah, you, I think you'll, you should be able to use a lot of the information in this book for sure. Because any longtime listener of our show knows that we love random tables and there's going to be plenty of those for just like building encounters and what that would look like pulling out like uh, you know story hooks things like that awesome yeah i love tables but yeah especially if this module like you, you talked about if it's scenes and settings and hooks and all of that stuff that's great i mean 5e we, we all love 5e we, we do 5e but if you wanted to roll like a different system like a fate system or something like that that sounds like something you could really just be able to kind of take these ideas and run with them so don't have to pigeonhole 5e but if you want to try something different it sounds like this will work really well for that as well yeah, inspiration is system agnostic, and that's that's something that I have thought, you know, and, and it's just a, a mindset that I use. It's weird that playing like almost 15 years of just D&D, really, like played face rip like once or twice, you know, a White Wolf game here and there, but almost exclusively D&D. And then when we start WebDM, like all the different games that I've played since, it's just been eye opening. And I use stuff all the time from other systems, like countdown clocks from like Band of Blades or uh, Blades in the Dark. Like the countdown clocks from that system are amazing to use for DMs trying to keep track and of, you know, guards being alert or a chase scene or anything like that. But we sincerely hope and the intent with this book is to provide a ton of information in a very usable fashion, not blocks of text, but like very, you know, bullet point lists, like I said, uh, random tables, things like this that you can just look at. It's all right there on a page. It's not hard to find the pertinent information that a DM or GM would need to run their game and have this thing just plunked down in it. So that's the hope. Now, I did notice on the official Twitter post in the comments that it was brought up that there is going to be a lot or a substantial chunk that's devoted to things like wilderness travel and resource management. Mm-hmm. Yes, because that's a big thing. It's something that uh, we've always had in our our home games. I don't know if either of you have played uh, Adventures in Middle Earth, but no. I mean, we, we talk about the Adventures in Middle Earth travel system all the time because it is like a revelation, right? As far as a 5e exploration pillar support mechanic, it is utterly amazing. Me and Jim played in a, a game over on Encounter Roleplay. It was like an eight week or 10 week game. And every time we use the travel mechanics from it, it was just like, why isn't this in the DMG? Like, you know, it just gives everybody a role to do. You make one role. It affects the whole thing. You get to your location, either tired or you found some stuff or whatever. But it's just one of those things of just like, this is what we need. And so what we want to do and what the intent is, is we want to have different versions of tracking encumbrance 
things of that nature, like just a few different ways, like, hey, you could try it this way or that way. Different things that we have learned over the years, either from other systems or house rules, things like that. But that is the idea is uh, we want as far as just like if you want to talk about tracking resources, you know, like rations, water, torches, you know, arrows, things like that. We want to have options so that you can find you can find the right level of crunch in your exploration, but we also want to have like a structure in a system. Much like, I mean, there's a specific structure for combat, right? Like everybody knows what you do when it's time to fight. It's right there in the books, right? You roll initiative, you determine who goes first, you do your thing, do all your actions. Like, why isn't that in exploration? Like this should just be something that is already there. And I'm not saying that we're just going to fix it, but that is what we're looking at is we're looking at a dearth of mechanical support in what is supposed to be one of the three main pillars of this game. And we want to give DMs the opportunity to have fun exploration so that their players can go out. This is a game of exploration after all, and you're supposed to go out into the brave unknown, not fast travel to the dungeon door. So again, that's the intent. I like that. So kind of going back, you know, referencing Fallout again, I know like you had some of the hardcore modes where you had to manage how much water you drank while you're out in the wilderness. And I know personally, most of the games that I've run and most of the games I've played, things like rations and even counting your arrow shots, things like that, totally get left behind. So actually having a a mechanical version to kind of keep track of that thing would add so much flavor to the game. Are you walking through a swamp? Are you walking through a desert? Is the area magically irradiated? Is the natural food you're going to find you know, not going to be good or good to eat or beneficial or harmful. I think these are actually some really great concepts that would be a lot of fun to work with. Oh, the consumption of food. And I'll I'll get into a little a little bit of detail, like a little behind the scenes detail here, because this is a main point of something. I'm not saying we want to fix it, but there are many spells and features that circumvent exploration entirely. Right. You don't want to worry about that. Okay, we'll just take the Outlander background and you can find food for you and six people and you don't have to worry about it. Like, really, like it's just like, okay, well, don't have to worry about that now. Oh, I'm a druid and I took Goodberry and we do that every day and we just eat Goodberries every day. We've done that for the for a month. Uh, We have a we have a cleric who does create food and water. So we have water to drink. Exactly. Right. So here's the thing, though. And what we talked about is how many times have you been told in various media, games, fairy tales or whatever, but every time a fairy offers you magic food, you're told never to eat it ever. Yes. (laughs) You never eat magic food. Let's get some Phalor in here. Awesome. Exactly. Right. So that's the whole, like we were looking at it from that, that angle. So like while those spells and features will still be in there, We are going to have some rule support of be like, well, this is how you can change them to not necessarily make playing in this using these rules on survival mode, quote unquote. But if you just eat magic food every day, that's going to alter you somehow in a land that the entire world was altered by a cataclysmic magical event. If that is what you choose for your apocalypse, like, don't you think that using magic to eat might be a bad thing? (laughs) That's (laughs) a good idea. That is a beautifully well done idea. I love it. So that's where we're coming from with this. So we wanted to offer a way to keep these things in the game. Think about the fact that you only have X amount of rations and water and whatever, but not be so granular that you have to keep track of every pound, every gallon. Right. So that's the hope in the end is it's something that you have to keep on your mind, but it's not like you're having to balance your budget. That's if we land the plane, like we've talked about in all of our meetings and what we have outlined, that's where we're going to hit. You know, that's where we'll hit up. Right. And I've seen a lot of homebrew rules regarding magical food and drink of the cumulative effects of. Yeah, you can do this, you know, once or twice Mm -hmm and be okay but once you start making a habit of it you know even just taking a real world example rickets jaundice you know scurvy i gotta get some scurvy gotta get those lemons all, all of these nutrient deficiencies because yes it will sustain you it will give you calories but it won't necessarily give you the things that you need to operate optimally so it'll keep you from starving but it probably isn't so great for you to continually eat it in the I long totally run. want to throw some scurvy on my campaign now <laughs> you know what's funny is we have a home game where emma one of our partners for webdm she's playing a character named uh she had a character named scurvy and now she's playing a character named mervy kirby uh they're both <laughs> pirates that were on the same ship but anyway <laughs> i digress. <That's> awesome <laughs> 
So again, we talked about your inspiration. A lot of it was from this land between two rivers. What other sources or materials did you kind of pull from to add to this? I mean, was it just all three, five East? Was it stuff from other stories, other games? I mean, kind of where did you get your ideas and your inspiration from? Well, I try to pull from all things that involve like the general scope of the project I'm on or like the game I'm preparing for, right? So this is like Weird Wastelands. This is Magical Apocalypse, right? This is, to me, this is Mad Max. This is any other, uh, this is being con on SETI Alpha 5. I mean, like I think about what it took for them to survive with nothing on SETI Alpha 5 for as long as they did. And like, this would be a wasteland like that, right? Uh, there's obviously ways to survive. You just have to figure out how to do it. And so I try to pull from everything. I think that anyone who who looks at this can see that there was some inspiration from Dark Sun. Definitely. I've never played like a full campaign in Dark Sun, but it's always been one of those campaign settings that I love reading about. I love reading about cannibal halflings riding dinosaurs <laughs> and the fact that everything is psychic, like ever the plants, everything. And so, I mean, really, like I try to pull from all over the place, whether it's Dune and Arrakis. I mean, even like the John Carpenter, like escape movies. I, I love those because it's a they're weird, like cut off tiny sandboxes of an apocalyptic setting. And so, yeah, I mean, like I can't speak for Jim, but uh, I know that he pretty much tries to pull from as wide a net or excuse me, tries to cast wide a net as possible when trying to find inspiration. You've named some really great franchises. So, yeah, I'm digging all of those. And another one that I immediately thought of whenever I read the synopsis and I saw the cover art was the Dungeon Dudes campaign world of Drakenheim. I'm not sure if you're familiar with it, but... uh, I'm not terribly familiar with it, no. But it's the whole premise is this meteor fell from the sky into the city and... It had these crystals that off-gassed this this toxic gas that's magically volatile. And so the city ended up being abandoned, but the people who ended up getting stuck there ended up mutating. And that's how you ended up getting like the tabaxi and the rat people. and Tiberium. Westwood yeah. called that stuff Tiberium. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it kind of was Tiberium. But that was, I think they're in their second or third campaign in that particular setting. And this whole project reminded me a lot of that setting as well. Yeah. I'm, I'm looking at the wiki right now as you, as you were explaining that to me and I'm, and I love it because I can see shades of like some old school Warhammer fantasy role play with some Middenheim action there. Nice. All the Skaven in the sewers. Also a little, little dragon Lance with the whole, fact the cataclysm some kind of meteor coming to, to bring about change i love it now i love the dragonlance series and i i think those were my first like actual D novels i read was the uh, dragons of the various seasons i think was what my wife yeah auto, auto twilight to start it out yeah, yeah. so like oh, yeah. rastlin's rastlin's my boy i'm sorry i just <laughs> hey it is a compelling as hell story like i started with the driss novels but like right after that i read the dragonlance novels and so uh, this is up there with me too yeah kill is my homeboy yeah oh come on now you want to you want to get into those you want to talk about a curse that's a hell of a curse <laughs> right there that's one way to become a to be a lycanthrope uh <laughs> yeah so going back just again trying to get a feel for you and what you play and how you do and kind of get some ideas for inspiration. What was your favorite D&D system? Uh, as far as what edition? Oh yeah. man, that's rough. I mean, I started with second edition. That was my first character was second. Uh, but I think third edition came out about a year and a half or about two years after I started playing. And I took to third edition like a duck to water. I love math. Like it's one of my... Figuring out a problem is one of my favorite things. And third edition to me was just a very complex uh, math formula. And just you just had to put everything in the right order. And it's like, yeah, there's an amazing character. And so I I love and will always love third edition for its its mechanical crunch. I I don't know how y'all feel about fourth edition. We had a very, very short stint with fourth edition. I was not a fan. Um, James has a James has a more negative view of fourth edition than I do. I call fourth edition the Dark Ages. Yeah, it's, we're we're about the same with that. To me, fourth edition was the snake eating its own tail. And when you have D and D based on World of World of Warcraft, which was based on D and D, like, th- come on, 
what are you doing here? We don't need a video game. It's a tabletop role-playing game. I can see what they tried with a lot of things. And again, looking back at some of the stuff, because 4th edition actually delayed my entry into tabletop gaming because I heard how much people didn't like it. And then when I started playing, I found a group that was still playing 3 and 3.5. But going back, they tried to recreate a lot of lore because they needed to do Mm -hmm. something different. So it's not just the same stale rehashing. But they completely flubbed. They did great building up the lore, but the mechanics of the game that completely flopped. Yeah, well, I I don't know. I wasn't a big fan because they abandoned the Great Wheel, right? With, yeah, with exactly. fourth edition. I wasn't really a fan of what they replaced it with. Like, not really. I will say, as far as like, um, I never DM'd fourth edition, but I do like the monster manual. I like the roles for monsters and breaking them up by that, like leader, striker, whatever, controller. Like, I thought that that was very interesting. Yeah, that's a, that just... is a good way to do things, especially if you're trying to build a party. That's mm-hmm. actually some great things to consider. And I believe we talked about that in one of our first podcasts, trying to figure out how to balance a party and get a group together. Yeah, it's much easier to at least attempt it in 4th edition because since they did have those broken down, it's like, okay, well, they got a leader and a few whatevers and they need some scrubs up front, some people on the side to fire in, and uh, we got an encounter. And so, yeah, I mean, it's cool. I would say overall, though, I had a lot of fond memories with 3rd and 3.5 to actually answer your question. But, I mean, 5th edition is a lot of fun. I will say that. I think it's very accessible. The It has a pretty clear mechanic system. And I, I just think that a lot of the stuff from core three, five, or excuse me, core fifth edition is just very safe. I think that uh, there's a lot that can be done that it doesn't have to be so samey with each one class to another. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I do appreciate the accessibility of fifth edition because it lowers that barrier to entry. I know yeah. third edition was very daunting for a lot of people you know you sit them down with their character sheet and you have this panel with 40 skills on the side of it and like it's like what do i do with this now well you're 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 gonna want to keep in mind all of the skills that synergize because you want to get that plus two to everything sorry yeah Yeah. (laughs) i i used to have that memorized (laughs) i used to have every every skill that had a synergy i knew all of them so It didn't matter the character I made. I could always at least put enough to get that plus two bump, baby. (laughs) Right. So shifting a little bit, what is your favorite non-D&D system? Oh, this is uh, this is a question that is as easy for me to answer as it is is the sunrise beautiful. And that is Cypher System. I absolutely love the Cypher System. And I've only played in a few of its component gaming, you know, settings like Numenera. Played some Invisible Sun, another Monty Cook game that's amazing. But uh, Cypher System to me is one of the most perfect systems to play. I have, I'll say this, some people think that Cypher System is complex. It's a criticism that I've heard from many people and I try to pitch it to them. But when I I went to a convention one time and ran a One Punch Man game using Cypher, because they have superhero rules, and I had nine people at the table who showed up to play, one of which had played Cypher before. So I had to teach eight people how to play Cypher and play a superhero game. It was a three hour game. And we had three full combat, three full combats with nine players, eight of which didn't know the system. That is impressive. That is very impressive, yeah. So that's my story I always tell when I say, so don't tell me it's too complicated. It seems complicated at first until it's like, oh, okay, I get it. And then that's, I've seen that look on people's faces countless times teaching people how to play Cypher System. Oh, okay. So I tutor, I I substitute Mm -hmm. teach and I tutor. And that moment where you see that light bulb flip on, that's always a fun moment. So I can just... I can only imagine doing that for a game system that had been great. Yeah, no, it, it was really cool. I know that at least three of the people at that game were like, where's the Monty Cook booth at? And they were <laughs> going to go check it out. And like, I was that's, like, well, they're right down there. That's awesome. <laughs> did, did you at least get a commission? Uh, <laughs> no, Monty Cook has sponsored some shows before. So I have to, you know, hashtag sponsored, not sponsored. Uh, <laughs> fair, fair enough. <laughs> Is there a game or a system that you would want to try out that you haven't got around to yet that you're looking forward to? Oh, man. There's more than a few Savage World-like settings I want to play in. I've only gotten to play like a Savage World game like once, and that was like at a convention for like an hour and a half. And it was like, this is really fun. I want more. I also feel the same way about uh, Dungeon Crawl Classics. Like I have a couple of books and only got to play 
at a convention for like a some kind of charity event uh and it was like an altered version of dungeon crawl classic so it was like a western so the rules were a little bit different but it was the first time i actually got to play and i was like holy crap this is fun but uh yeah i mean there's there's a couple uh hang on let me turn around and look at my bookshelf oh i really want to play uh i think it's called Coralis. coriolis coriolis yeah uh, yeah it's the dark sci-fi game from the with the sweden company i forgot the name of the yeah the, um the maker um but i've played symborum i ran a symborum game on on webbeam's twitch before so i'm glad i got that out because uh symborum is an amazing system if you've never gotten to play it i highly recommend it i know they're doing like or i think they're in the middle or just finished their 5e conversion for the symborum system but um i highly recommend it for anybody who's looking for that because i know there are some of those people out there that are looking for a classless system and that's what that's why i love about symborum oh my like they do have suggestions they do have archetypes in there and they tell you the powers you want to pick in order to make this archetype but at the end of the day, it is a classless system and you can pick any of the ones you want. If you want magic, if you want to fight with a sword, if you want to be good with armor, whatever, you just pick it. It's like a three-tiered feat kind of thing. And that's it. That's the, Those are your like abilities. And that then, sounds uh, really interesting. I, I haven't heard of this one yet, but I definitely need to check it out. Oh, it, it, oh, the art is amazing. I absolutely love the art. It's another, I think it's from Sweden, uh, another game from that area and it's what i like about it is like it has a pretty small very specific setting but it works it's like here here's a small sandbox and here are the players in it and here's why they hate each other have fun and that's it it's like oh you're in a forest and the elves will kill you the elves will straight up murder you there's no talking <laughs> there's no any that's that's another reason i love it is like it's really hard to play an elf even though in a subsequent <laughs> book they they added elves as a playable race because everybody gives in eventually right but that's one of the things i love about it is if you actually see an elf there's a lot of arrows already in flight and uh you'll be dead shortly so please please hold <laughs> yeah the swedes have actually been putting out a lot of really good games and i'm really impressed with some of the products coming out i mean the big one that comes to my mind is uh, more Borg. I've heard of this. I've heard of it. I've never gotten to play it. I've not gotten to play it either, but I've listened to a few interviews with, uh, is it Pele uh, Nielsen? I think it is the guy who wrote Morkborg. I've heard a couple of interviews with him and it just sounds like such a great game. It, it also has that Mad Max apocalyptic death metal kind of feel to it. It just seems really like something I want to at least play at some point. I'm just trying to think now if you play this, we're going to have to like pull up some like dragon force or, or you know some some lamb of god or oh i have a full pandora station that's nothing but scandinavian folk metal that we can use as the soundtrack for it you ever heard of high lung uh no i can't say as i have they are german and scandinavian i think i'm not sure which northern european nordic country but uh, you should look them up because their whole deal is they try to present as authentic of a kind of pagan music experience as possible if you were just walking through northern europe at like 700 AD. I mean, I'm talking like skin drums and like they're wearing animal skins. There's a guy who's like a shaman. There's a woman who like has a voice descended straight from fucking Asgard. And they're like a full band like thing on stage. I can't recommend it enough. If that's that sounds your, like something your Kristen has on her YouTube music, and I have no idea who it is, but it has very much that feel to it. It feels very primal yeah. and in the woods, and it's uh, oh. it's actually some really cool stuff. Yeah, no, you should listen to, uh, I believe it's uh, the name of the album or whatever is called Lifa, L-I-F-A. If you go to YouTube and type in High Lung Lifa, uh, that's their live show. And just watch the whole thing. And, you know, when I was running my Symbarum game, that literally was what was on anytime I was writing. Yeah, I just had that playing. background music for your games, that's always yeah. just such a wonderful touch. Especially if you don't speak the language. It's the only way I can listen to music while writing. Yes, if, yes so absolutely. I love, I, yeah, that's why I love some good uh, tube and throat singing. That's that's starting to get a little popular now with The Who, but I go back to the old school, Hun Her too. look them up, you're welcome. <laughs> yes, I am actually familiar with that one, but I'll, I'll do that. I'll do, uh, I've gotten to where I can do a lot of writing to uh, just plain chants, like Gregorian chants. Yeah. Yeah, I do that in the background oh. because my day job is I'm an editor for an independent publisher. And so I've got a book that I'm working on editing right now that is a dark fantasy book. And that just puts me right into the proper mindset for getting to where I need to be 
for that book. Yeah, no, the, finding the right album for whatever you're preparing or writing is a thing of beauty. It's where you can truly see the synchronicity of the universe. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. So going back into Wastelands, because I mean, that's why you're here, right? You want to tell us about your, your project and your Kickstarter. Yeah. I mean, we love hearing about you and your stuff, but but stuff. Uh, yeah. You talked about you had some subtypes for some classes and stuff. Is there anything you kind of want to maybe pull the curtain back a little bit, maybe get a glimpse of the Everlasting Gobstopper, as it were? <laughs> yeah. No, I understand there. Yeah, like I can tell you for sure the uh, subclass that is in our promo uh, that is coming out. Uh, it actually, I guess it would have come out today. You would have access to the, the Circle of the Broken Land Druid, which if you watched uh, Land Between Two Rivers, that was a custom subclass that he had for that. It has gone through many revisions since then, but it was basically the idea of uh, imagine a druid that was the physical manifestation of the rage of a torn land, the last dying gasp of a torn land. You are the instrument of its rebuttal. Right. As the whole idea. So it was it was originally based around like a what if a, a druid could get into a, basically like a spell casting trance, kind of like a barbarian somewhere between a barbarian's rage and a blade song uh, was okay. is kind of the idea behind it. It's kind of changed a little bit, but it's there's a, a lot of uh, access to fire, which there's some overlap with the new was a circle of the wildfire druid. There's a little overlap there, but it's not so much about renewal, like burning and renewing. It's more just about like, well, we're ruined, so let's just burn it all. I really kind of like the concept of, you know, a pissed off vengeful druid. Generally, your druids are like the kumbaya, happy tree huggers, you mm. know, but no, a druid that's just pissed. Yeah, no, this is not your tree yeah, huggers. Yeah, no, I can druid. totally embrace that. I can totally get behind that. Uh, but yeah, it's a lot of fun. I know Jim's been working really hard on that to get out on the promo, but just uh, to kind of bounce around a little bit. We're going to have like a techno wizard. That's more about uh, kind of putting together pieces of things to help people survive the wastelands. Another one is uh, like the scavenger ranger. That's more about uh, not necessarily knowing exactly what it's about, but knowing exactly where to find it is more what it's. A so uh, being a scavenger, it's all about finding those little bits and pieces that are going to help you get to the next day. Right. Because gotcha. that's the whole idea. Another one that I'm excited for. We're going to be working on a strength based rogue. Uh, oh, the enforcer. And so, you know, when you got these seedy underbelly types that need legs broken, you got to have somebody to do it. And, you know, I mean, sure, they could be a barbarian or a fighter or something, but I think it'd be much more fun to have someone who's really good at breaking legs and knocking heads. And uh, so it's going to be kind of like the early Rocky Baba. <laughs> a little bit, a little, little bit. <laughs> I, I'm just I'm just excited now for the prospect of getting to use a billy club for a sneak attack. Thank you. That's a, literally that's because like, <laughs> it is such a trope, but it's kind of like it doesn't really make sense for the rogue normally. <laughs> and so it's the mace rogue finally. Yeah, this, this yes, is your, you just got a sap. You got your sap that you just walk up and clock people in the head and they fall over over your shoulder and you carry them back it. to your boss. I uh, love it. You know, however you want your expression to look. But basically, yes, a strength-based rogue. It's something that me and Jim have talked about, I don't know how many times, like what it would look like, you know, what would be the expression like. It'd be something of like a Batman, you know, like if you didn't want to do a bunch of multi-classing, you know. <laughs> Good it's still stealth if everyone's too afraid to talk about it. Exactly. <laughs> I can I can just see now. You saw nothing. Smack. <laughs> no, I can I can just see now running that rogue archetype on a bugbear. Oh, oh it, trust me, that was that was pretty much <laughs> the baseline archetype imagining. Yes. Yeah, that's exactly what I'm seeing. You got that reach. You got that extra two d six anyway. Come on. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Ooh. Boss men say I break you. <laughs> I must break you. <laughs> oh, that's I love great. It. And that ranger, I was thinking we did that world with world build with us. That ranger would have been amazing there where you had the kind of the balance between the technological stuff and then the living vine systems and stuff. But even still, a lot of your tech pieces were clockworks and things like that. That ranger would be amazing in that kind of setting. Oh, yeah. yeah cool. All right. So time for a hard question. All right. If Wizards of the Coast came to you tomorrow and said, OK, we need you to make a decision for us. Spelljammer. Planescape or Dark Sun? One of these three is coming to 5e. Which one do you pick? Uh, oof, man, that's that's a rough one because I love all three of those systems. Uh, again, I've never played in Dark Sun, but it's always been near and dear to my heart ever since I found out about it. I have played Spelljammer. I've run in Spelljammer. It is the siren that calls to me in the vast night amongst the stars. But I would actually say probably Planescape because to me, Planescape was a transformative gaming experience for me. 
Uh, I remember Jim ran a Planescape game for us. It was a very early third edition game, and it just, I couldn't believe it. Like, he did it right, where we were plane hopping every adventure. Like, every adventure, we were popping into this plane and back out, and, oh, we forgot of this over here. And, you know, so it was one of those things of, like, really kind of balancing the idea of all these all these dimensions or planes or worlds or whatever you want to, however you want to see them in your head. But the fact that uh, there's just one amongst many and each of them has an equal chance for adventure. So, Hey, your cup runneth over. Where do you want to go today? And that's the idea, like getting into that kind of like Star Trek mindset, anything could be an adventure. And so, yeah, I would definitely say Planescape who, uh, yeah, which by the way, uh, I believe was created by Monty Cook, who is writing the forward to our book. Nice. Yeah. We wrote the forward for uh, Arcana of the Ancients, the 5e conversion that they did. Mm -hmm. And so we were like, hey. So going back to that hashtag sponsored, Mm -hmm. not sponsored. Mm -hmm. (laughs) A little bit. Yeah. I like it. And I have personally, I have to agree with you on Planescape because we're working our way through the planes. We started on the Echo planes and went to the inner planes and we're just getting ready to start on our tour of the outer planes. Mm -hmm. As we mentioned at the beginning, be starting in Mechanus. Mm -hmm. And so as part of that, because, you know, Mechanus is one paragraph in the fifth edition DMG and that's all the mention of it. So far in fifth edition, we had to go back to the older editions, the old texts. Yeah. To the ancient scriptures. Yeah. And so I happen to have the two E Planescape books on my shelf, courtesy of one of my wife's exes who, well, I don't think very highly of him, but I appreciate that he left me these books. Um, (laughs) But just going through and actually reading through the second edition books and all of the lore that they put into it, it really got me wanting to do a Planescape game. Yeah, I I know what books you're talking about, and it's mind boggling. It's beautiful. Um, And I've been listening to the Goblin's Corner podcast, and they did an episode on Towel Day talking about Douglas Adams and, you know, incorporating Douglas Adams. And I, as soon as I, you know, I got about 10 minutes into that episode, I'm like a Douglas Adams hitchhiker themed Planescape game. Yeah, that's one way to do that right there. I think another fun thing not to give, you know, away too much for next week, because again, we are talking about Mechanist, but a March of the Monodrone campaign, I think would be a lot of fun too. Oh, yeah. The march around the planes where the, where the yeah, where you have to put everything back in order. Oh, man. We did a piece of that. Jim one time ran a it was a cypher game. But going back to your question earlier about using books for other systems, he ran the infinite staircase, the Planescape adventure where you get to run up and down the infinite staircase. But we ran it with cypher characters and it was almost flawless. Like it was it was amazing to play a D&D game without D&D, but it's all Monty Cook stuff. And so we were like, yeah, it works. <laughs> so real quick, when you build your campaigns or your sessions or your one-offs, what are your favorite kind of NPC or mob or enemy character? What do you always like to throw in? Like what, what makes you happy to throw out your characters? Uh, I have a couple of voices that I do that I like to do that I think I do really well, even though I know I, that I don't do very well at all, that they're always going to be in there. I'm always going to throw in a Sean Connery somewhere and I'm always going to throw in Jimmy Stewart. Oh, yes. Um, <laughs> those are like my two just go to NPC voices, like usually early in the campaign, if I haven't thought about an NPC and I'm like, yeah, I want this NPC to kind of be important. I'll go to one of those because usually the party thinks it's funny and we'll come back to them. <laughs> But I will say this, and I've only learned this recently, since I have played so many games, and especially in the last few years, playing a lot of different systems, like shorter games, but I get to play a lot more characters like online, where it's a little bit more about being quote unquote in character. And so I will say this, playing in all those games has given me a bevy of characters that I can now have as NPCs. And I've only started doing this recently using my old characters that I've played as NPCs because in I have a current sci-fi game that I play, it's just a home game, and I have used three different characters that were PCs that I've played in other systems, other games, but they basically have the same kind of gist and story in this game. And those are the NPCs that they constantly go back to and want to talk to all the time. And I asked them about it one time and they were like, well, just like, I don't know, they just seem more real. And I'm like, thank you. Okay, cool. And it's just because it was like, 
I've played a whole game with these characters. I have thoughts and memories, you know, that that these characters experienced. Right. So, you know, DMs out there use it. Yeah, (laughs) you know, use it all. I've done kind of a similar thing. And it wasn't my character. It was a friend's character in the first game I played. But he had a dwarf barbarian that had the best dwarven name I've ever heard. And no one can ever top this. But Red Blackbeard. Yeah, that's a good one. And for whatever reason, whenever he would roll a thrown weapon attack, he just, his dice were always on fire. Could be rolling once all day, but if he was going to throw something, it was always a 19 or 20, just <laughs> how it went. So that's just, you know, kind of built into Red's thing that if you need an old dwarf that can kind of get into trouble and throw some stuff, then, then here comes awesome. the here. Yeah, I made a uh, dwarven monk who was a brewmaster, and uh, he had a drink that he called Gut Punch, and that was his drink that he went around and sold, and then got drunk on it uh, as a drunken master. (laughs) So was Red the one that you locked in the library that one time? Yes, it is. (laughs) Uh, So he's well-read then. Yes. (laughs) I'll be here all week. Sorry. So what kind of like experience or idea or theme, what's the one thing, like if anybody could pick up your book and say, I'm going to give you this book. I hope you get this out of it. What's that one thing you hope people can take away from your Kickstarter? Uh, oof, man, the one thing that I hope, I hope that people using this book, I hope that it is because this is the full intent. I hope that it is easy to use because that is one of the main things. And one of our main complaints with 5e books is how hard it is to find or just the way the information is disseminated and presented does not behoove proper use at the table. And so, yeah, I hope that if a DM is using this, these location or an NPC or whatever, and they actually have to crack the book out at the table. I hope that it's just like just a natural fluid situation where they just look at it. And, okay, I got it. And I'm put it right away and not like, you know, bring the game to a halt. Because that is, again, one of the things that we went into this going like, this is what we want to do. We want the information to be easy to process and and use and uh, easy to access at a moment's notice. Yeah, those DM pauses always break immersion, unfortunately. Yeah, and that's what sucks. And like, hopefully you have a party that you can say, hey, why don't y'all discuss this? I need to look at this for a minute. But yeah, I know what you mean. And if you just put an index in the back of it, you're already doing better than about 90% of the source material Mm -hmm. for 5e right now. That's my biggest gripe is that I think only the player's handbook and the DMG have an index in the back of them. Yeah. It's kind of annoying when you're looking for a very specific thing. Yeah. (laughs) So yes, we, again, we have to, you know, y'all know this, you have a podcast, you talk about this kind of thing, but when you're in a position where you have to like look at these books and read them and review them and talk about them to other people, you know, it's just one of those things that always comes up. It's just kind of like, there's got to be a little bit better way. And I think that we have some stuff that uh, we've come up with our own. We are taking some stuff from other systems and other books that we like. And that's a main thing. It's take your inspirations from everywhere. Don't box yourself in. All right. Well, I think we've come to a pretty good conclusion there for the interview portion of this. One of the things that we like to do when we have a guest on is create a creature on the fly. We have a random table that I found months ago called the weird bug generator that lets you roll a bunch of dice. And then we just sort of come up with something on the fly based on what we roll. Especially especially if it's a fly. (laughs) Sorry. Right. (laughs) My bad. The first time we did this, it actually did fly. It was the hand of death. So it was this carrion feeder in the shape of a hand that, you know, it got filled up on, you know, methane from the rotting flesh that it was eating. And so it would just sort of float. Oh, nice. And the stomach was a bag of holding. So it became something that people would go and actually hunt them on the battlefield after a battle and very carefully dissect them to save their stomachs so that they could be taken to make bags of holding. Oh, that's awesome. But you always want, you want to, you want to be able to get some out of your monsters. Yeah, absolutely. So if you've got your dice, I do, they are at hand. All right. So let's go ahead and get started on this and uh, give me a D four for locomotion. All right. Got a one. Okay. It flies. Sweet. (laughs) Well, if it flies and stings, then I win because (laughs) anything that can fly and sting is already broken. All right. So next up is going to be a D6. What does it eat? Man flesh. Uh, I got a three. A three? It eats honey. Okay. All right. I'm liking it so far. Okay. All right. Yeah. So we have honeybees. Yeah, we got got some honeybees on the way. The next up is going to be a D8 for the size. Large. Colossal. Bigger the better. An eight? 
Okay, eight is human size plus roll again. I I got another eight. Okay, so two people size and roll again. We're going to keep going until we get something else. I want a freaking kaiju. Come on. A two. A two? Okay, two is a grain of sand, so it's the size of two people. Okay. All right. I like it. 10, 11, 12 feet tall. It's a flying giant that eats honey. It's a giant Winnie the Pooh. (laughs) Christopher Robin. Like one of those ultra large stuff you can like win at the the Mm -hmm. carnival? Yeah. I like it. What are you looking at, piglet? (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So next up is a D10 roll for the number of limbs. Oh, uh, six. Six. Okay, so we are properly insectoid for six limbs. All right. Next is a D100 roll for the number of eyes. There it is. That's the sound. 33. (laughs) Okay. Nice. 33 eyes. I love that. I've got this mental image of like these banks of eyes across the front, like a spider. Yeah. Yep. I think right now we're rolling a Jeff Goldblum. Yeah. From the fly. Yeah. yeah. Just about, <laughs> just about. Okay. Uh, next up is going to be a D 12 roll for the oh. method of defense. Oh, D 12 and barbarian. Uh, 11 spines. It has spines. Sweet. Okay. So this is turning into kind of like an insectoid porcupine almost uh yeah i mean well i because i can't help myself yeah this is uh this is kind of looking a little bit like uh, we have the magicore is one of the monsters in our promo okay a ma- yeah a manticore a manticore that eats magic so just thinking about flying and the spines i mean okay yeah i'm picking up what you're putting down That's, yeah i can see that okay next up is going to be a d20 roll for quirks mm, gotta have you gotta love a good quirk table come on uh, 15. 15. Roll three more times on the D12 chart. Oh, crap. So we're going to have three more methods of defense. Sweet. All right, here we go. Two? Two? Okay, so this is this is going to be a bite, and I need you to roll something and let me know even or odd. Odd. Odd mandibles. Okay, so it's got spines and mandibles for biting. Yep. I like it. Uh, one. A one pincers. So it has pincers, mandibles, and spines. Gee, this this is just like who created this? <laughs> this is, somebody take this away like, their. This is, this the is like a spider crab almost. Yeah. Uh, eleven. And eleven is spines again. Do we want to keep want that, more, or do we want? Well, I mean, or, it is we, it is twice the size of a normal human, so maybe it has spines over its entire body as opposed to half. Okay. Or, or I could roll again. I mean, I like rolling. Or, or you could roll again. We, Here we go. We Let's ro- roll again and see what we get. Nine. Nine, a spear limb. So not only does it have pincers and mandibles and spines, but it has a spear limb. That is insane. I would say that would be an adapted spine. Like an adapted spine or like a stinger, like an extended like stinger kind of thing. Yeah. I'm kind of seeing it almost set up like... Uh, I'm not sure how familiar you are with Pokemon, but Kingler, he's a big crab and he's got a one great big claw and one little bitty claw. Yeah, I can kind of see that. But instead of that little bitty claw, he has just a spike like a that lance. he punches things yeah, with. Yeah, like a lance kind of thing. Yeah, I, see, yeah, I can okay. see it. So he's got a pincer on one side and a big spike on the other, and he's got his big pincers and there's big mandibles. And, and that pincer could kind of act like a shield if it's flat. You know, yeah. Kinda... And then if it all fails, just crouch up and you got your spines. You just, you know, you put up your... Yeah, just kind of roll up into yeah. somebody. Or you're flying, just you just sit there and tuck your wings yeah, and drop. Oh yeah, just 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 tuck and roll and drop. Yeah, that's that. Just oh, do man. the Kirby attack. Like you the, know, uh, the oh, what is that bird that picks up the lizards and stuff and throws them into throws spikes? Them, throws them into the yeah the spikes in the tree. I, I I should know this one. I know exactly. What yeah, you're talking about I know what you're talking about the thorny bristles of that tree or whatever. Yeah, that, yeah. that's yeah. insane. Or you know, like barbed wire or mm-hmm. any anything really that it can identify that's spiky. I can tell you. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. When a creature would have spines, but also have like a pincer limb that sticks out in front or whatever on top of that. I mean, this is something that has like secondary and tertiary defenses. I mean, they were like raised on the fucking plane. Sorry, I don't mean to be too blue. No, there. you're fine. Uh, uh, raised on the plains of Chunka, right? I mean, like... Yes. Sorry playing mass effect since it came out but like i mean this is insane like <laughs> yeah someone's gotta be worried about being eaten by everything it's like well i'll just i'll just defend myself with everything 
Yeah, I was going to say spines are, you know, evolutionary. It's the one way to keep something from chomp on you, which means there's something running around fairly big that's twice the size of a human that, so I mean, are we talking about Tarasky or? Well, I mean, this would be a nice little like, you know, like hors d'oeuvre for a Tarasque, yeah. wouldn't it? Yeah, just about. <laughs> I mean. But yeah, that there's a meme that I found, you know, years ago with this one creature that just had Know, spines all over it and it said something along the lines of speaking evolutionarily creatures grow spines to repel predators so maybe we should save the happy yay we killed the beastie dance until we get off the island yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> absolutely okay so here's the last bit okay make a d100 roll because now we make it weird oh man all right, it's going to be 89. 89, scroll down here. Can be processed by alchemists into an edible and combustible oil. Ooh. Oh. So either maybe uh, some of the spines come out and there's a, like, it has a system of uh, almost like oil for like pore or like in your pores for like hairs, and follicles when they come out to uh, make that process easier. I could use that for that. I mean, if it has spines, then those are like, shish kebabs for like eating yeah i can definitely see this being like uh you know a regional delicacy sort of thing where you would get the spines from this thing and like you shish kebab onto it and then whatever is in it chemically cooks the meat that's on it oh yeah that that would like, be really really interesting yeah mm-hmm. could also maybe that long pointed whatever is also could be a stinger so it could have like a poison sack in there too if you you know a good poison or an acid to throw into the mix so it would expel this fluid that is like napalm i mean it, it, maybe it could uh Possibly. i was thinking if you have like a pocket underneath each of the spines maybe the spines are ejectable yeah i mean going okay. back to the manicore having like a like a discharge yeah. kind of thing okay yeah i can yeah. see that so it like builds up like a little gas pocket or something that it yeah. pops out but you could capture that gas and it's that's what makes it combustible or you know use a fire spell at the right time you can use their own weapon against them oh i i would hate fireball in one of those i would things. hate Holy to see God. what would happen if you killed one of these things with fire because it would go off like a grenade oh, yeah all the spines at once yeah no that's definitely a worst case scenario if the party completely screws up killing this monster Definitely. Do like a 40, 12, yeah. you know, within 10 feet or 15 yeah. feet. Yeah, see, this is a monster you make like where using small fire spells, like, you know, they just throw a flame bolt and all oh, part of it pops off and it looks like it's really hurt. It's like, oh, well, hit it with a fireball. It's like, <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> Should have stuck with firebolt. And you could just like nickel and dime it to death because you don't want to do the big. Should yeah, just use the club. Yeah, you don't want to use the big explosion. And what you do is if you kill it with fire, the damage from the explosion scales off of the amount of fire yeah, damage. So you it dealt could be it. a little That's bit, a little amount a or a, a great amount. You hit it with that fireball that you maximize because you're a sorcerer. <laughs> yeah, that's evil. I love it. I make fire now. <laughs> I make you a pincushion. Ha. <laughs> All right. And I'm, I'm going to roll on it one time just because I like having two things to make it weird. Um, see here. And of course the D10 rolls off the table, uh, 95. I could never use these D 100s to play call of Cthulhu because I never roll anything lower than about a 70 and I would fail everything. I absolutely love call of Cthulhu. Some of my most, my favorite characters were in that. All right. That, so that 95 setting. shaped like a letter in an ancient language. A colony can be used to decipher the dead script. Ooh, you could do, let me think. Do so you know those crabs that grow in Japan and they look like they have the faces of the samurai? Yeah. Maybe the chitin has like some sort of... Okay. Or it's on like the face because I would see the faces being the one area on this thing that doesn't have spines on it. That or the... Or, or the, the wings. Claw, the, or the, the claw. If it has wings. Does it have wings? We didn't it decide. Fly, so. it, it flies, but it doesn't have to have wings to fly. Granted. Well, here, okay, so here's my thing. If you use the gas thing, which I love for ejection, then maybe gas is just part of its modality. So it inflates itself and it uses buoyancy uh, and maybe ejects a spine every now and again to change course and direction. Yeah. Uh, but uh, yeah, no, it doesn't have wings. It's like kind of like a puffball or, you know, like a puffer fish with claws. Okay. Yeah, so I'm kind of seeing the, the Zerg overlords a little bit more spiny. Okay. Okay. Yeah, so I mean, yeah, either the face or the pincer could be flat enough that maybe it has okay, a design. Yeah, that I, like could, I could see it. that as like a like a modeling pattern on it, maybe. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. 
Yeah, or just the general shape of it. it's one pincer claw and one pointy claw forms. Okay, could yeah. Form something. Yeah, that could nice. work too. Yeah. It looks like it's like an air traffic controller with the flags, like giving people different <laughs> signs. <laughs> yeah. All right. Okay, so what are we going to call this thing? Oh, Mothra. <laughs> <laughs> I think that one is under copyright. Um, yeah. Um, let's see. The Flying Fugu. It's like, I mean, I'm just drawing blanks here. Yeah, I know. That's the thing is I'm normally I'm really good at this. And uh, let's see. OK, so it's it can float. It's like a puffer fish. It's spiky. What is the name? Is it the fugu fish? The Japanese delicacy? It's the spiny fish that's poisonous? Yeah, I think so. It is the uh, it is the poisonous yes. one is a fugu fish. I can't remember if it's spiny or not. I think so. Uh, the, yeah, no, no. The fugu puffer fish is okay. what Yeah, what you're thinking of. Yeah. Yeah. So um, hmm. the floating fugu. Yeah. Well, I mean, and, oh, wait, wait. Like a Price Fister faucet, it's called a fugu with a PF. Yes. It's it's a pafugu. I like nice. it. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> there it is. Just to piss people off on how it's pronounced. <laughs> yes. Yeah, my, my mom's German, so I am quite familiar with PF words. Mm-hmm. All right. So we have this flying creature that eats honey. Which I don't know why it needs this punch spike and well, giant that's how it gets, claw. It, gets di- it gets down in certain uh, flowers with its long spike, right? Okay, yeah, I can right? see that. Maybe, so, so it could do that, maybe. and it has the it has the smaller pincer claw for other kinds of flowers. Maybe that's it developed those just to get at honey because okay. it's this puffy like thing, and otherwise it can't get to it. Uh, okay. So maybe that's yeah. how it does it. Or maybe it raids other creatures' nests that create honey. Maybe it doesn't create the honey itself, but it's like, you know how the bears will go through and tear through like the trees to get to the, yeah. ooh, the tree hive. Okay. Yeah. Oh, yeah, it just goes through hives. It just it just punctures them. Yeah. So here's something I want to propose, possibly going back and retconning, because on the bite, we had the option of mandibles or a proboscis. And this just feels oh. like a proboscis would make more totally. sense. I completely agree. Yeah, I'm good with that. Okay, so we're going to change the mandibles to a proboscis. So say we all. So say we all. All right. It is the size of two grown humans, has wow. six limbs and 33 eyes. All around it. Yeah. All around. <laughs> yeah. Maybe they were created by beholders. Maybe that's why okay, with all the yeah. eyes and the kind of the spherical kind of gas bag kind of thing. Maybe that's why. I yeah. like it. I like it. Good idea. Um, yeah. So we're going more aberration than monstrosity. I mean, you know, it could be a monstrosity created by aberrations. But uh, yeah, I mean, I to me, this is at least a monstrosity. Okay, yeah. I, I would say maybe if it ate something a little weirder, it would be an aberration. But, you know, it eats honey. Eh. Okay, yeah. It's mostly harmless. Now, as long as you leave it alone. Yeah, now when a beholder puts it in its honey garden so that when prospective like looters come in, like, adventurers and the like, they're going to be coated in honey. And then these things are just floating around. Yeah, you know, the party's screwed. But that's that's how <laughs> yeah. I would use them. Like they're like watchdogs. That, I love it. You know? That is glorious. <laughs> yes. And so it can be processed into an edible and combustible oil. And it uh, is shaped like uh, a letter from an ancient language. So either I think we put it on the claws. It has a, a modeling pattern on the claw. And a colony of them put together can be used to decipher a dead script. Oh, so, nice. Yeah. Again, that kind of ties right back in with the beholder and stuff like that anyway. So yeah, I, I love the concept of a colony of these things being used like a Rosetta Stone. Yeah. Like there's one character on one side of the claw and one character on the other side of the claw. And the one the character on the inside of the claw is a language that some sort of language that a beholder would have access to, like uh, Abyssal or something. I like it. And, and then you would be able to use the claws as like a Rosetta stone for this character means this. Yeah. And just try not to get punctured by one of the, it's little spines while you're trying to use it. It's right. <laughs> Can I see your claw? <laughs> the claw. It's coming to get you. Um, the claw. <laughs> All right. Well, I think that we have done a pretty good job here today. So for wrapping up, this is something that we ask our guests. Is there someone in the community, a maybe a YouTube creator, maybe a content creator that makes modules or, or some such, someone who you would like to shout out to get a little bit of visibility on? Someone who you think is doing a good job in the community and needs to get a little more visibility? 
yeah, I would say definitely you want to check out Grant Ellis. He works with us uh, all the time, but he has his own thing that he's doing on YouTube uh, where he's doing kind of short form videos, kind of like what, what we do. But yeah, Grant Ellis, uh, you want to check him out because he's uh, he's got a keen mind and a lot of a lot of gaming knowledge. And uh, check out. I mean, he was in the Land Between Two Rivers also, Gildan the Goblin, and he's a hoot. So, uh, yeah, yeah, definitely check him out. <laughs> yeah, I remember him. <laughs> yes. Awesome. And then obviously we've got the Kickstarter, so you can find that on your Twitter. So go ahead and definitely shout that out and where to find you guys on YouTube or anywhere else. I mean, let's fluff you guys up a bit, too, because that's why you're here. Oh, definitely. I mean, uh, check us out on YouTube. We got WebDM and also our live plays, uh, our actual plays uh, are on a, a separate channel called WebDM Plays. Uh, we have a Patreon if you want to go check that out where we do a podcast every week. So for I think it's like five bucks a month to get access to that. Uh, we also do some uh, we're doing some early access stuff during the Kickstarter for our patrons. But also, you know, we're on Twitter. We're going to be back on Twitch. We haven't really been paying attention to Twitch for a while. Uh, it's just kind of you know, that's a lot to deal with. But we always have the YouTube show. So check that out and enjoy it. Uh, but you can also, we started uh, releasing that uh, wherever you listen to podcasts. You can check out WebDM on your whatever podcast app you use uh, that should be available. And we will definitely put links to the YouTube and to the Kickstarter in the show notes. Absolutely. Cool. Appreciate that. All right. Well, thank you for coming on and talking with us today. It's been it's been a blast. It has been a ton of fun. Thank you so very much. Yeah, this is uh, it's been a heck of a good time, guys. Appreciate you for uh, appreciate it for having me on. And uh, we'd like to say thank you to everyone who has been listening today. If you have any comments or suggestions or ideas that you'd like to see us run with in a future episode, go ahead and email them to us at undercommontaste at gmail.com or send them to us as a direct message through our Twitter account at UCT Homebrew. I'm still doing my Shakespeare and Insult page a day calendar inspired role play prompts six days a week. They're going up on the Twitter account and then getting cross posted to our Instagram and Facebook accounts uh, at undercommontaste. We're now on Patreon, patreon.com slash undercommontaste. Uh, we're putting all of our weekly write-ups on our Patreon account, so go check them out there. And if you would like to help us financially, uh, go ahead and sign up to be a patron. You can also find our podcast wherever you find podcasts. We are on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Audible. So as always, give us a rate and review that helps increase our visibility, and this way we can bring more content and figure out what you guys want to hear so we can deliver that to you all. And thank you once again for joining us today. Thank you, Pruitt, for coming on today. And next week, we will, for real, real, see you in Mechanus. Check out the Kickstarter and happy gaming. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Undercommon Taste. If you enjoyed what you heard, please pass it along to your friends. If you have comments, suggestions, or ideas, you can email them to us at undercommontaste at gmail.com. If we like your idea, it may make it into a future episode. You can find us wherever you find your podcasts, and we would greatly appreciate any likes, ratings, and comments you could provide. Find us on social media. We're at Undercommon Taste on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube, and on Twitter at the handle at UCT Homebrew. If you would like to help support the show financially, please visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash undercommontaste. Our theme is Massacre Anne written and performed by Mary Crowell and used with permission. You can find her online at marycrowell.bandcamp.com or on Patreon at patreon.com slash drmarycrowell. Thanks again for listening, and stay safe. You'll hear from us again soon.